The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And if you haven't yet, let the eyes open. Still sitting still for another moment or two. But really in an ordinary way coming into the moment, to here and now. And just knowing the difference between the mind resisting and grasping, controlling, you know, all the little and big ways. The heart, because of habit, knows how to get tight. So notice those little and big ways of being tight and notice the possibility of releasing. And a lot of it is just knowing that whatever storm blows in, little problem arises. If we're patient, if we're curious and patient, it will cease on its own. Something comes, feels heavy, feels intense, and then it ceases. So begin to stretch your body, adjust as you might need to after having sat still for a while. It's nice to be with all of you. I'm here in New Jersey at my mother-in-law's house, taking care of things here while uh, my partner's uh, brother, who usually takes care of my mother-in-law, is on vacation. So we have cats you don't recognize. <laughs> Activity. Doesn't want to be outside of the room and doesn't always want to be inside of the room. So we're finishing up a series, I think it's the fourth talk on wisdom, one of the ten paramis, these beautiful qualities of the heart. And um, you know, wisdom is really that part of the mind that discerns cause and effect. It, and it's really just another way of saying wisdom is that stability and curiosity of the heart and mind that sees things as the way they are. And seeing things as the way they are means that we're seeing the causes for stress and the causes for release, because that's what the mind as nature is naturally interested in, how the heart gets bound up, how the heart releases that. And so one of the ways, one of the formulations in early Buddhism is that wisdom discerns the causes for this ordinary satisfaction, like when we get what we want, we have the praise or the love or the stuff we want, and there's that ordinary gratification. So wisdom discerns how that comes and goes. And wisdom discerns the dissatisfaction and the misery, because exactly for that reason that, yeah, we do get nice experience, but it doesn't last. It changes. It's a kind of betrayal, because even when we get in a sweet spot and the body feels good or we're in a nice social situation, well, it doesn't last. Things change. There's gain and there's loss. There's praise and there's blame. That's just the nature. And then the last and, and really most important thing that wisdom discerns 
are the causes for escape. So there's three things. The wisdom discerns how it is that this heart can be satisfied in that ordinary sense, not, not in a permanent sense, like ordinary experiences of happiness. Wisdom, when it's developed, we get better at taking care of ourselves and finding ordinary satisfying experiences, right? And avoiding experiences that don't provide even the beginnings of satisfaction. And wisdom also discerns the cause for all of the feelings of betrayal and misery and distress. Oh, how did that come to be? Oh, I see. I see the mind was attached to this lasting. It forgot that it's going to go away so that when it went away, then the mind was upset and felt miserable. Okay, I see the causes for the misery. And then the most subtle and most profound are, is this discernment of the way to escape that cycle of samsara, of gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. These are called the eight vicissitudes or the eight, you know, wins, worldly wins. Gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, and pleasure and pain. And, you know, it's different for each of us, depending on our privilege and good fortune. But we're all blowing through these eight states. Nobody has sort of a constant state of pleasure or constant state of praise or blame. So in our guided meditation today, you know, we came back to that image of ease, the ease of the river of our life, doing what the river of our life does, it moves. Bodily experience moves, mental experience moves, there's movement, and then there's this extra thing we call suffering, which is a resistance, it's a friction in the system. And the friction arises, you know, when you discern, when you pay attention, but we can borrow what the Buddha came to understand, that friction arises when there's attachment or identification with desire. So there's intention, there's desire, there's wanting this and not wanting that, and and there's a clinging and attachment to those natural desires that come with being a human being. And that creates the experience of friction. The heart, the body gets tight. And we experience that tightness as suffering. I remember this phrase from Thich Nhat Hanh, this very well-known Vietnamese Buddhist monk and taught for many decades here in the West. He's back in Vietnam now. And he said something very simple, happiness is available. Please help yourselves. <laughs> it's a, it feels like an affront when somebody says that because in the world as we experience, even in my situation, which is, you know, I have pretty good fortune in terms of health and, you know, just good job, good friends, live in a good place. And when someone says happiness is available, please help yourself. It's just, I mean, initially we might feel like, um, yeah, just like the person doesn't understand. And then when we reflect, we feel bad, like, why am I so unhappy? Or why am I tight? Because, you know, it isn't too bad right now in this moment for me. 
And uh, it relates to something in the tr tradition that the Buddha spoke soon after his awakening, his deep insight, where he was just reflecting on his own experience of seeing clearly suffering and its release. And he said something like, wide open are the gates to the deathless, to freedom. Wide open, totally available for those he says, uh, wide open are the gates to the deathless. Let those who can listen, let those who see clearly, bring forth their faith. So in, in a way, maybe it's just initially borrowed faith. You know, we just have some degree of interest. And the important thing about these pointing out instructions is these teachers of ours, they're not saying that the happiness is down the road when you finally, once and for all, get your act together and stop doing those bad stuff and only do good stuff. Then, you know, you'll get your reward out there later. So there's something, and this is really provocative. There's something in these spiritual teachings of the Buddha that are really saying it's here and now. And the reason that's such an affront is like it seems so obvious, like this moment could be better. This isn't it. Could this be it? I don't think this is it. This is not what I had in mind when I aspired to, to total and complete freedom, right? Because we have some mental image of ourselves when we'll be free, like what that will look like. You know, and it usually involves a beautiful meadow you know, with butterflies and no mosquitoes or something like that. You know, some idealistic vision of ourselves or our situation that's just the way we think it should be and therefore finally we have a reason to be happy because we're always externalizing the cause for happiness instead of internalizing like the cause for distress and the cause for release is a function of understanding, not a function of circumstance. And that, you know, is provocative. And it's not something we need to believe in, it's just something we might want to check out. And the way, you know, the, the basic uh, approach is mindfulness, the stability of present moment awareness, this wise, stable presence is a kind of universal solvent in the sense of dissolving ideas that, the, that kind of govern the mind, that distort the mind. They, this stability of wise present moment awareness dissolve fixed views or any views, any distorting views, so that what arises instead in its place is seeing things as they are. And that's usually described in the tradition as seeing the underlying conditions, like that things are changing, ephemeral, in motion. And because of this flow, unceasing flow, that experience is fundamentally unsatisfactory. The, the experience we've been from day one looking to make us happy can never do it because it isn't it will never be 
fixed in a way, never provide that solid ground. So things are changing and therefore unsatisfactory and they're not self. Experience, changing experience, it's not self. It's this impersonal natural process. And Ajahn Sumedho sums this up, and this is just a phrase we can bring up if it's meaningful, if it actually helps us connect with the moment more, uh, more clearly. Everything comes and goes, and it's not self, not personal. Everything is coming and going, and it's not personal. And we use a phrase like that not as a way of pushing away anything, but it's useful if it brings the heart more into the moment, into alignment with the way it is in an undefended, in a curious, and intimate way. Oh, look at this, here and now, like this moment too, not later, but even this moment sitting together on Zoom, everything is coming and going, the talk, the reaction my heart to the talk, everything is coming and going and it's not self. Sylvia Borstein, one of the founders of Spirit Rock Meditation Center, north of San Francisco, one of the mother ships in our um, early Buddhist tradition here in the West. She's a wonderful Buddhist author as well. And this is her book on the Paramis, which um, I have linked to, and maybe I'll just paste that again, the link for the Sunday resources. Um, But in that section on the chapter on wisdom, she writes, I remember more consistently that although I try hard as I can and hope as hard as I can, I am not in charge. Everything is always changing and so nothing can be permanently satisfying. And I absolutely know that railing and resenting when I'm displeased with life's unfolding compounds my pain. Life unfolds lawfully guided by conditions far too complex for me to know and certainly far beyond my control. Those insights sounded right to me when I first heard them from my teachers. But hearing alone was not enough to change my mind's habit of resisting and struggling. I needed to meditate. I needed to pay attention. My habits of suffering, grieving, resenting, fretting, began to change when I could feel my mind from one moment to the next untie itself from a knot of painful struggle. Over and over again, each untying happened in a moment of clear seeing. It's really important to understand that Sylvia, in writing this, she's not saying that I did the untying. She's saying that the untying, the grip, was released in every moment of clear seeing. This is what's happening. It cannot be otherwise. Struggling is extra. Struggling is suffering. Each untying reroutes the mind in the direction of new wisdom in a way that makes enduring clarity seem a feasible, albeit formable task. Like changing the course of the Mississippi one bucket of sand at a time. That's a really powerful teaching there, and it and it points to something that I think is important, which is because otherwise we get impatient. Like even when we start to have some insight and some experience of freedom, 
we can get greedy. Oh, I get the lay of the land. I know how this works. I saw attachment cease in a moment. And a lot of confidence in just a simple moment of observing our mind tied up in a knot, grasping some self-centered drama, right? But there was enough of the stability, wise, present moment awareness. So that storm, that self-centered storm was observed as a natural process. Okay, my mind is tied up in knots. It feels like this. It's in motion. It's happening. It's happening. And it's like everything has its own arc. It arises because of causes and conditions. It blooms and then it ceases. Not because I want it to cease. It ceases because that's the nature of everything. Things come and then they go. And when we see that even that uh, drama and the mind's attachment, taking it personally, and the pain that comes with that attachment, that grip, to see that it blooms and ceases on its own, that is a life-changing event. Every time we see some drama, even something simple, oh, there's a box of chocolate downstairs, which is true. And, uh, oh, after this... So, to feel that little drama about like, oh, how good that will be. Well, there will be some satisfaction to eating something delicious, and then it will cease. But I can be aware of this little storm being there and and notice that it ceases. Whether or not I eat chocolate, that storm will cease. And if I observe it, if I have enough continuity of mindful awareness, enough curiosity, enough respect really for what's going on in my own heart and mind, all the little storms coming and going, if I have enough respect just to track them, we start to see that the storms cease on their own without me having to gratify or act out the drama. It doesn't mean I don't act it out. It just means it will cease on its own. If I desire to be a better Dharma teacher, you know, better Buddhist teacher, meditation teacher, you know, and that has some impact in my heart, I get a little tight, I really want to be good at it. But now, you know, with practice, I can see that. Just like I can see the fear of not being very good at it. And I can see that all of those dramas, they arise and cease and are not self. Like that opening reflection we did, that we chant at funeral Buddhist funerals. All conditioned things, everything, comes and goes, arises and passes. Seeing this clearly, understanding this clearly, really getting this ex- immediately in our own experience, not philosophically, not intellectually, leads to the deepest happiness, which is peace. Because when the heart really sees this directly, the heart ceases to resist. And we have an experience of the river without friction, the heart without grasping. This is really where we're going. So I want to spend a little time before we end today making sure to talk about this third noble truth. So let me just remind us, you know, that... um, the way that wisdom is framed and mapped out in early Buddhism is with these four noble truths, 
which are really 12 insights that we progress through just by cultivating the stability of present moment awareness. We have the insight, the ennobling insight. You know what? There's suffering. I know it sounds so obvious, but this isn't like there's suffering and it's a problem for me. There's a lot of humility in this insight. There is suffering, and you could say we add, and it's my teacher. There is this suffering, there is this contraction, there is this heavy drama, this tense drama in my heart, in my life, and it's my teacher. In a way, we're suspicious, like, does it have to be, have to be heavy? Does it have to be tight? My good friend is dying. Does it have to be tight? I really want this promotion. When is the pandemic going to be done? So we have all these different dramas. Why are so many people being taken advantage of? Why can't we resolve the immigration problem in the United... You know, so whatever we come up with that has some weight in our heart, we want to see it, oh, this is interesting, that this is weightful, this is a burden. Doesn't mean we can get away from the responsibility of these um, choices or these truths, these responsibility in our lives. It just means we're curious about why it's heavy. Oh, there's dukkha. I should really understand this. I have understood this. Those are the three insights. And it's just about this transformation from stressful things being a problem to being interesting, a teacher. And when we actually get interested in all those little and big places where they're suffering, we're able to wake up to the next three insights, which have to do with the beginning, how it is that suffering stress arises. Oh, look it. I've been so aware, so stably present with the drama, whatever the drama is, that I'm beginning to see that the grip has a cause. I see the grip, the suffering, the tension, the weightfulness. I see it actually arise in moments, take birth in this body and mind in moments. And what that does, it really changes because we see unshakably that the cause of suffering is here, not external. And then we start to feel there's something I can do about it. Because it's taking birth right here. I see the causes, the identification with desire, the identification with craving, attachment. Right? It's the personalizing these natural processes that creates this present moment grip, the weightfulness in our heart, the burning, the suffering. And then as that insight matures, the second part is this gripping, grasping, identifying, attaching, this should be abandoned. It has been abandoned. So there is a cause, this, this identifying, this gripping, this craving, this holding. It should be abandoned. It has been abandoned. doesn't mean that we individually try to get into our heart and make ourselves let go. We're just seeing that it's not helpful. It should be let go. That's an insight. It isn't a doing. We're seeing, oh yeah, this taking this personally, 
should let go, should be let go of. It adds nothing to my life or anybody's life. I can be a functional, creative, helpful human being without the identification to a, to, to desire. I can feel moved, like love. Love is a movement, right? But we don't have to personalize it. That really contaminates the love when we make it, I love you. No, I feel this wish to take care of you, to make you happy, to be with you, to appreciate you. That's what love is. It's the wish to support and to take care of, to be with. It doesn't need the, you know, I, the I, me, and mine. We just think it's just a habit, a very deep one, of course, a very persistent habit to personalize desire. So the way out is with the stability of mindful awareness, this present moment awareness. And we just basically desiring has to become our teacher. This is the second noble truth where we really get that all the places where there's desire, we have to be a good student. And we have to see that how natural it is for the mind to get attached to desire, to take it personally. Selfing is a deep habit that needs to be seen. We don't need to hate that habit. That's just more selfing. I hate the habit of selfing. We have to get really familiar with it and notice that the selfing ceases on its own when it's observed in this non-judgmental way. It ceases. And that brings us to the third noble truth. There is an end. This end should be realized. This end has been realized. And I want to read before we end, a little bit from Ajahn Sumedho about this third noble truth. And this is from, I think, a wonderful book. It's called The Mind in the Way. And this is, uh, even though it's written by a Buddhist monk, it's actually available for purchase. A lot of the books are only available at the monasteries, and they're freely given. But this they published just so that would get out to a bigger audience. It's called The Mind in the Way by Ajahn Sumedho. And it's the chapter on the Four Noble Truths. And here he's writing about the Third Noble Truth. And he writes, The Third Noble Truth is the truth of cessation. Right? We're realizing this is the heart where there's no grip, no identification with desire. So it's the truth of cessation. When we have knowledge of cessation, we begin to endure through some of those uh, through some of these difficult desires rather than just reacting habitually to them or impulsively following them. We are less attached to the desires, less invested in satisfying them. We let them cease naturally. We endure through boredom of pain or pain, through doubt and despair, knowing that they will end. It sounds pretty gloomy if you take it too literally, but looking at it another way, understanding cessation is part of maturing emotionally. A common idea is that everything is going to get better and better. We're going to be happier, and the more money we have, and the more vacations we have, and the better everything, the better everything will become. We have constant forward progress. When we're young and naive, that's the way we think life should be. We worship youth and the arising, developing, and progressing it suggests. 
Yet many people begin to get weary of it all, bored with it. It's seen as a kind of emotional childishness. And to a Buddhist, that kind of weariness signifies maturity rather than neurosis. It's a sign that you are beginning to look more closely at and gain understanding into the way things are. And when you observe cessation, when you begin to note and understand it, wisdom arises. When we fully comprehend cessation, we become very peaceful. Because if we allow anything to cease naturally without annihilating it, it will take us to peacefulness and calm. A little later he writes, that calm occurs because there's no more trying to become something or trying to get rid of something. There's a kind of inner peace or relaxation of the mind in which you stop following the struggle to become or to have sensory pleasure or to get rid of some unpleasant condition that you're experiencing. So you are at ease with those conditions. Right? That's the flow of the river of our life. You begin to learn to be at ease with pain, with restlessness, with mental anguish, and so forth. And then you find that the mind will be very clear, very bright, very calm. You know, and it, and it makes so much sense that the resolution isn't somehow to make life perfect. There's an old simile used in the tradition, you know, Somebody's walking around barefoot and they constantly are stepping on sharp stones here and there and other objects, thorns, things like that. And they have this brilliant idea. I'm just going to cover the whole world in some sort of smooth leather or shag carpeting or, you know, but that's, that's my brilliant idea that I know how to deal with this constantly stepping on something sharp. I'll smooth out the whole world then I'll be happy, right? So obviously a very frustrating endeavor. And then with wisdom we realize it's not the roughness, the sharpness of the world. It's something right here in the heart, in the mind, this misunderstanding really. And it's that's like building a pair of shoes. You know, instead of trying to fix the world, we correct the wrong view, the wrong understanding in the heart that this constant experiencing should be clung to as I, me, or mine. That we should identify with desire. That we should take this natural process of desiring to be warmer, to eat something sweet, to hang out with somebody, that we need to cling to these desires. We can just see some of these desires can be acted out in a way without attachment, in a way that doesn't cause anybody harm. And some of these desires will just decide to feel the impulse of the desire, but without acting it out, because it doesn't need to be acted out, and acting it out would cause harm to ourselves or others. It's such a relief to know that there's these movement of desires, we're not repressing them, we're not afraid of them, and we're not confused by desire. And then this, this is really the second noble truth, really understanding that desires come and go and are not self. 
that really leads to this more profound cessation of just the idea, the habit of imposing or projecting self. And we really understand how to let the river be the river. And there's that profound, surprising experience of peace. My life is the same, my personality is the same in a, in a large to a large degree, but there's just this profound ease and peace doing the next thing, doing the next thing, doing the next thing. And remember, doing the next thing might be mean making a mess of something. One of uh, Pat, my mother-in-law's cat, uh, is uh, really old and has some kind of thyroid problem. And so we're trying to get the pill far back in its throat, you know, and it's very weak and hasn't eaten a long time. It's a total mess. You know how it is. A lot of you know how it is. You know, and you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. And and it's like, but, but why does our hearts have to be heavy or tight? We're either going to try to give the pill to the cat or we're not going to give the pill to the cat. But whether we give the pill to the cat or don't give the pill to the cat, how does it help anybody to be tight, to be afraid, to be worried, now, even if I do get tight, right, because it's pretty easy for us to get tight in those kind of situations, well, then I'm not going to get tight about being tight. Okay, this is freaking me out. I don't want this responsibility. It shouldn't be this way, you know, something like that. Okay, I'm acting out, freaking out, feeling, oh, poor me. That's like this. Should I freak out about freaking out? No. I mean, when we talk about it this way, it gets so obvious it doesn't make any sense. But we have to observe it directly, immediately, because that's what, uh, that's what really opens up the, when we see how the grip releases on its own. It's a little bit like when we watch a thought, when our mind is pretty settled, like in a meditation, and we notice a thought arise, like maybe a thought that we think a lot, we're planning the future, some trip or something, and we see it arises, but we have enough stability of awareness that that whole drama runs its course, maybe in just 30 seconds or whatever, and then the thought ceases, but the mindfulness is continuous enough that we really see that moment where the thought ceases before the next thought arises. Let me just read a, a little. Ajahn Sumedho talks about this. I think I have just enough time to share this piece. So this is a little bit later in that same chapter. Rather than saying you have to believe in an uncreated or the ultimate truth or in God, the Buddha pointed to what is created, born, originated. He taught that we should look at these created conditions because that is where we can see directly and learn from. That is what we can see directly and learn from. So that just means what we created. That's just our ordinary experience. And then he goes on and writes, He taught us that the act of being mindful and awake to the created takes us to the uncreated. Because we experience the created arising out of the uncreated and going back into the created. 
This experience of the uncreated, at most an ineffable experience, the Buddha called Nibbana, which means a calm or coolness. So this is the thing, like a drama arises and we want to really see its birth because that's where we understand, oh, the cause of this painful, stressful drama is the mind's attachment. And then we want to see it cease because that that helps us understand, I don't need as a person to get in there and get rid of the attachment I just need to realize that the attachment arises and ceases on its own. Attachment or anything, you know, just to be provocative, anything bad your mind does, it's an impersonal process. It arises and ceases on its own. So what wisdom does is it understands how it comes to be and how it ceases. And that really is what changes the course of our life those insights into the cause of that grip and the cessation of that grip. But you see, it's not easy work because it means we have to be a good and intimate student of our grips, our attachments. And we want to act out our attachments, right? They hurt. And so we neurotically think, I got to do what I always do when I'm attached get what I want, get rid of what I want to get rid of, become who I want to become, then the grip will go away. It only temporary eases, temporarily eases up. And it isn't long before we're just in another grip. So I'm hoping that some of you can stay for the small groups, but otherwise just in your own reflections, your own conversation with your friends this week, really challenge yourself to recognize moments where there is this letting go, this cessation of attachment. Really get curious. Is there attachment? Is the heart attached? Oh, and be really happy when when the answer is, yeah, I'm a little bit attached here. Then observe that with that balanced and non-judging present moment awareness. Observe the little or big attachment and just see if the Buddha's right, that it ceases on its own. When awareness is there, clearly aware, and not judging, not trying to make it go away, that's important, then you'll see, if you're patient, persistent, you will eventually start to notice it cease. The heart was in the, gripped in the storm, and now it's not. Whoa. I didn't, nobody did anything. It ceased on its own. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.